Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Good morning, you fools! In today's passage, as Dan just read for us, the Apostle Paul tells us we are a bunch of buffoons. We're a mass of morons, a fellowship of fools. Because in the eyes of the world, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the cross, is foolishness. And those who cling to the old rugged cross are fools. Then and now, in Corinth and in Camden, Jew and Greek, the experienced seekers and the thought leaders, the practical and the intellectual, the gospel is foolishness to the so-called wisdom of this world. And so here we are, a bunch of fools for believing it. Now, this originally today was just going to be one message, but as I prepared it, it became obvious that it was at least two and more likely three messages. So I split up the section, and even though the bulletin says we're going to do a longer reading, I've shortened it. So I'm going to get a lot of use out of my new garb. But in order not to distract us anymore, because I'm going to be the most distracted of any of us. Yeah, by the bells. <laughs> but my foolish friends, let's embrace our foolishness and let's begin to examine what Paul writes here about our foolishness and the wisdom of God. So it begins in verse 17, which Dan just read for us. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, note here that Paul's not saying baptism is unimportant, but Paul's saying the gospel's the most important. Friends, baptism won't save you. Only Christ saves you. Now, baptism, apart from a saving faith in Christ, is powerless, so Paul says the baptism is important, but all it does is point us to the power. 
And the power is not in baptism itself. The power is in Christ. It points us to the Gospel, the good news of Jesus. And that's what Paul wants to do. He wants to point his hearers to the good news of Jesus. And Paul also says here in verse 17 that his preaching, his presentation of the good news of Jesus wasn't with words of wisdom. Now, wisdom is a key word in this section. When I study a passage of Scripture with my family... Or when we say a passage of Scripture together on Wednesday nights, when we gather um, 6 to 7 every Wednesday night, you're welcome to join us. We read through a passage of Scripture, and one of the questions we ask is, are there any repeated words or phrases? And if we had read this passage in its entirety, as I had originally planned, you would have heard ten times The word wisdom. And even in the shortened passage that Dan read for us this morning, we heard wisdom repeated over and over and over again. Because remember, Paul's writing to a culture that values wisdom. Now, as we discussed last week, at this time in the ancient world, there were sophists. Sophists from the Greek word sophia, where we get the word wisdom. In fact, philosophia, sophia, is the love of wisdom. So, sophists were those that claimed to spout and teach wisdom. They were purveyors of wisdom. They were generally very skilled in speech and in rhetoric. And these sophists, they were really celebrity speakers. And they would travel from town to town, and they would try to draw after themselves disciples and followers. They would come to a city, and they would fill the local amphitheater or the forum. And then for the edification, and more so for the entertainment of the crowd, they would pontificate on all of the, of all the topics of the day, whether they were philosophical or political or religious or otherwise. And so the sophists were really that generation's political pundits. You know, they were the Joe Rogans, the Ben Shapiros, the Bill Mars, the John Stewarts, the Stephen Colbert's. They were well-spoken. There were high production values. They were the celebrity entertainers and commentators of their day who spoke their mind on the issues of the day for the edification, but more for the entertainment of all who heard. And just as it is today, while some of these sophists were classically trained and they were truly, truly knowledgeable, many of them had a reputation of being more about the entertainment than about the edification. They were more about talent than truth. It was really more about the show than any substance. And Paul writes here, well, my presentation of the gospel obviously failed to measure up to the impressive and entertaining show you've been getting with the wise men of your day. Now, I was discussing this with my family and my children asked, well, how is it that Paul, I mean, the Apostle Paul, this guy was well-trained. He was knowledgeable. He, He was a good speaker. How is it? that he could say that his presentation didn't measure up. And I think it was Samuel who said, well, we call this mountain out here Mount Batty, but compared to other mountains, that's not much of a mountain, is it? And so in the same way, Paul was good, but compared to the sophists um, who had style and pizzazz and flash, Paul didn't measure up to their presentation. But even more than that, and more importantly, I think, Paul says, hey, listen, the lack of flash was actually on purpose here. Sure, I could have tried to out-debate them, out-perform them, out-style them, but I didn't. Because again, look at verse 17. He says, My presentation of the Gospel didn't come with words of eloquent wisdom, lest 
the gospel of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, hey, listen, I didn't need to dress up the gospel in fanciness or flourish because the gospel is the power. I didn't need style because I got substance. In fact, he writes, I didn't want to distract from the gospel by my presentation. You see, he said, I don't want you to be impressed by Paul. I want you to be impressed by Jesus. He didn't want the Corinthians to be impressed by him, but by Jesus. Friends, if you walk away from Sunday mornings and the only thing you say is, Adam's a good speaker, then I have failed miserably. I do not want any of you walking away from here saying, Adam is a great speaker. I want you saying, Adam serves a great Savior. Paul says, I don't want to be a beautiful painting for people to admire. I want to be a window. Don't be a painting, be a window. We come to admire paintings, but windows, you don't stare at the window frame and go, that's a really nice window frame. You look at a window to see the view that is beyond the window. The the window is there to let the glory of the view shine through it. And Paul goes, I'm not a painting like these sophists. I want to be a window. And I want the glory of the gospel to shine through me. The sophists of Paul's day, well, they were paintings. And in fact, they want people to come and admire them. Admire their wisdom. Admire their knowledge and their style. Look at me. I'm a brilliant and beautiful painting. And Paul says, I'm not playing that game. That's the game this world plays. Paul says, I'm not playing it. I'm not going to play. I could play that game, but I'm not going to play it. I'll present clearly. I'm going to present accurately. I'm going to present strongly, but I'm not doing it just to show off my wisdom. I'm doing it to show off my Savior. And if my wisdom distracts from my Savior, then I'll get my wisdom out of there so he can steal the show. Paul's argument is that unlike these sophists, the so-called wise men of the day, he says, I don't need to be flashy in style because I've got real substance unlike them. And friends, it's still true today what was true then. You know, this world is trying to woo you. All these pundits and commentators and wise men of our day are trying to woo you. And friends, it's far more style than substance. Today's pundits, commentators, and entertainers try to play to popular opinion. They manipulate your emotions. Their, their words are compelling and they cancel any competition. They have style. They can move your emotions. They can even format, out, for, format, um, format outrage. But when you get to the center of what they're selling, it's empty. The world's so-called wisdom is mostly show and flash and style without the substance. And Paul says, listen, I got the substance. I got the real thing. Because at the center is the gospel and that there is power. They've got no power at the center. So they have to make a good show of it. But I've got power at the center, so why do I need to hide that? Why do I need to dress that up? There's no fancy wrapper necessary. You know, but the problem is, for the lack of the fancy wrapper, many were rejecting the good news of Jesus. Now, many of you here have probably participated in the Yankee swap or white elephant party. You know, everybody wraps up a gift and they all bring them and they put them in the center of the circle and people take turns choosing a gift. And I don't know about you, but, but you're trying to figure out which one's the best gift to pick. 
How do I know what's a good gift with this big pile of gifts in the center? And the problem is that the only thing you have to judge on is the size and the fanciness of the wrapping. And so some people, some people, you know who you are, will take advantage of that fact, and they will wrap up small or really bad gifts in large or fancy-looking packages. Yeah, you know who you are. I hear you laughing. And so you quickly learn at the Yankee Swap or the White Elephant Party that the best presents are not always the largest ones. The best presents are not always wrapped the most impressively. In fact, oftentimes, the really good presents come in unimpressive packages. And because they're unimpressive, you might overlook them and not choose them as you go around and do the swap. And friends, that's the problem, Paul says, with the cross of Jesus Christ. Then and now, according to the wisdom of the world, that doesn't look very impressive. There are other things far better wrapped. Some of the gifts look far bigger and far better. The world's wisdom says, well, I'm going to choose those because that gift there, that one looks foolish. And thus it's overlooked and rejected. And understanding this, what does Paul do? Paul here starts with this brilliant and backhanded swipe at his opponents. You need to hear, Paul's going at his opponents here in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So Paul says to his opponents, hey, so you think the cross is foolishness? Well, only those who are perishing think it's foolishness, so I guess that means we know what's going on with you, don't we? Oops, sorry. The message then and now appears as foolishness to those who are perishing. It appears as foolishness to this world. In fact, five times in these eight verses that, that uh, Dan read for us this morning, the Apostle Paul uses a form of foolishness or folly. It's the Greek word moros, where we get our word moron. In the eyes of the world's wisdom, those who believe the cross are morons. In the cross, the world sees only folly. It sees only weakness. But for those who are being saved, we see true wisdom and magnificent power, Paul says. You know, when, when we were planning this morning and Jacob and I were talking about songs for the morning service, I said, Jacob, we have to sing the old rugged cross. Not only do I love that song, but again, it repeats this truth over and over again. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. And the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. Or the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach I'll gladly bear it. Because the world might despise it. The world finds it repulsive and shameful and reproachful. And all who cling to it, they're morons, they're fools. However, to those who are being saved, there is a wondrous attraction. A desirous beauty, a sublime wisdom. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross until my trophies at last I lay down. And I will cling. I'll cling to that old rugged cross. And exchange it someday for a crown. Paul's argument. The world that's perishing sees the good news of the cross as foolishness that should be despised. This is the gift at the Yankee Swap or the White Elephant Party that gets overlooked. But for those of us who took it and opened the present, we found inside the power of salvation. 
Inside is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, how you view the cross of Jesus Christ says everything about you. That's what Paul says here. He says, when you look upon the cross of Jesus Christ, how you see it, how you understand it, says everything about you. So when you look upon the cross, what do you see? What do you see in that old rugged cross? In verse 19, Paul supports his argument with a quote from Isaiah chapter 29. Uh, In its original context, uh, this passage from Isaiah, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, and it's one of the many passages in the Old Testament where, where basically people are warned not to try to match wits with God. You see, in our human wisdom, we kind of think we can outwit God. It started in the Garden of Eden, and we've continued doing it ever since. And even though we've lost every time, we keep doing it. There doesn't seem to be any, you know, any slowing down to our thinking we can outsmart him and outwit him. And so this passage in Isaiah says, stop it. Because God is going to do exactly what he promised he'd do. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. He's going to frustrate and thwart the discernment of the discerning. And that's what he did at the cross. That's what he did at the cross. He thwarted all of our wisdom. He frustrated all of our discernment. And he said, you're not going to know me by your wisdom. Then I'm going to reveal myself to you by my wisdom, which is going to look like foolishness to you. In fact, in verse, in verse 20, he's kind of sarcastically mocking his opponents again. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? That first statement, where's the one who's wise? It's the Greek word Sophia, meaning sophists, the debaters, the philosophers, the so-called men and women of this world who are wise. Or the scribe. Scribe here is the word that's used of the Jewish experts of the law, the religious, the devout, the so-called righteous. The Greek philosopher with all of his rhetoric and debating and the Jewish scribe with all of his learning, Paul says God outsmarted them all at the cross of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Friends, through human wisdom alone, the world didn't know God and the world cannot know God. Human wisdom is insufficient to save us because human wisdom alone cannot bring us to God. Paul writes that the good news of Jesus Christ is that God revealed Himself to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. He revealed a way that we never would have guessed or figured out or reasoned. Human wisdom cannot reason its way to God. So God must reveal Himself to us. Hear that again. Human wisdom can't reason its way to God. So God has to reveal Himself to us. There's a Christian songwriter by the name of Chris Rice, and he wrote a whimsical little song called Smell the Color Nine. Smell the Color Nine. And the lyrics, Samuel, I think I have them there. Whoops, let me move over there. It says, I can sniff, I can see, I can count up pretty high, but these faculties aren't getting me any closer to the sky. But my heart of fate keeps pounding, so I know I'm doing fine. 
But sometimes finding you is like trying to smell the color nine. Smell the color nine, but nine's not a color. And even if it were, you can't smell a color. And that's my point exactly. It's a whimsical little song, but the songwriter's point is you can't reason your way to God. It's like trying to smell the color nine. It falls short. That's Paul's point. Paul goes, you can't reason your way to God. So what did God do? He revealed Himself to us because our human faculties are not enough to bring us to God. So God revealed Himself, and when He did, in our wisdom, we're like, well, that's a dumb idea. And God goes, no, this is actually wisdom. Because you think you're wise, but you're a bunch of fools. This is actually wisdom. And in His wisdom, God chose to do this so that no one could boast. Because, friends, think about this. If human wisdom and learning were enough to lead us to God, were enough that we could know God, then in the end, our salvation would be by our works. It would be by our reasoning, by our labor, by our effort. We figured it out. We made our way to God by our reason. And then we could boast. Because we did it. We found God. We figured Him out. And salvation ultimately wouldn't be a gift. It wouldn't be by grace. It would be by our works. We figured God out. And if human wisdom could perfectly make God known to us more than that, friends, those who are wise and intelligent amongst us would have an advantage in coming to God. Because if we could reason our way to God, then the smarter amongst us, the, the more acute in mind, it would be easier for them to reason their way to God. And then they'd be able to boast because they did it. But friends, the gospel... The gospel is that the the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody has an advantage. The wise have no advantage in coming to God. No advantage over anyone else. Because we all come equally regardless of intelligence, wisdom, or learning. Because God says it's not by your learning, your wisdom that you're going to come to me. It's by my grace. And that's equally offered to all. Because the foot of the cross, the ground is level there. God's revelation of Himself is equally accessible to all. And so God's turned the table on human wisdom. He's brought salvation in a way that the world's wisdom looks at and goes, that's a bad idea. That's foolish. But it's true wisdom, the passage says. See, God's wisdom is not what the world in its wisdom is ultimately looking for. It's not what this world's looking for. Verse 22. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews demand signs. Friends, Jesus did many signs during His ministry. He did many, many signs during His ministry, and the most incredible of His signs were the cross and the empty tomb. And even after all the signs He did during His ministry, even after the cross and the empty tomb, even after all He'd already done, it was still not enough. It was not enough. I want signs. And friends, there are still people today that are looking for signs. God, if you're real, or if God was real, He would. God, if you're real, you'd heal my child. If you were real, you'd reconcile this relationship. You'd fill my bank account. You'd cause my suffering to end. You'd let me get this job. You'd punish those people who hurt me. You'd let me hear your voice audibly, or you'd let me experience you tangibly. And Jesus, Jesus, if you want me to believe, what I need is I need signs. I want this power. I want answers. I want experience. But friends, for all the signs that Jesus did, 
throughout his ministry, we never, ever, ever see him do a sign on demand. Jesus is not some cosmic vending machine. He doesn't do signs on demand. In fact, when the Pharisees of his day, the Jewish leaders, came and demanded a sign of him in Mark 8, starting in verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. Because he'd given them many signs. And he was ultimately going to give them the ultimate sign in his death and his resurrection. What we find is, friends, first, Jesus is no two-bit deity who jumps at our every command. But secondly, and more to the point, friends, if you're seeking signs, it will never be enough. If you're seeking after signs, it will never be enough. Because there will never be enough or great enough sign to compel faith. If you refuse to believe Jesus based upon the signs recorded in the Gospel, if you refuse to believe despite the clear sign of the cross and the empty tomb, then no sign and no amount of signs will ever cause you to believe. The problem is not a lack of signs. The problem is a lack of willingness. Jews demand signs. Greeks demand wisdom. Now, Greek here was simply shorthand for anyone who was not Jewish, remembering that Greek thought dominated the Roman world at that time, and the Greeks looked for wisdom. They, they were a society that had advanced technically based upon their wisdom and their reason, and, and many of them had abandoned the traditional understanding of the gods, and in fact had enshrined reason as a god. And so ultimately, if there is any kind of a god out there, he should conform to reason, specifically our reason, our wisdom. And friends, we still have those today who say the same thing, don't we? God should conform to the wisdom of humanity. A true God would bend to my wisdom, to the spirit of the age. True wisdom would conform to the so-called wisdom of this time. What do you mean God doesn't conform to my desires and my wisdom? What do you mean that I have to conform to him? Many then and now reject the wisdom of God because the wisdom of God doesn't conform to our human wisdom or our human understanding. It doesn't conform. In fact, it challenges it. The wisdom of God challenges our wisdom and says, your wisdom, what you think is so important, it's actually foolishness. None of us like that, do we? And so many walk away. And Paul says, this is the only message I got. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. You know, today we don't have any idea how ridiculous that phrase is. Christ crucified. We have no idea just how scandalous the phrase Christ crucified is. It was an oxymoron. It was like saying jumbo shrimp or pretty ugly or same difference. It made no sense. Those two words do not belong together. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. God's anointed chosen one who is going to come to deliver his people. And crucifixion 
was the most despicable and shameful mode of death in that day. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified because it was so despicable. It was saved for the slaves and the worst of the worst and the least of the least. So here's Jesus, killed as a common criminal. Friends, he was strapped into the electric chair. He was locked in the gas chamber. The needle was slid into his arm and he died by lethal injection. We generally don't esteem people who die by those methods, do we? And neither was a person esteemed who died of crucifixion. And just as you and I would never wear an electric chair or a lethal injection needle on a chain around our neck, neither would the early Christians have ever worn a cross on a chain around their neck. In fact, according to history, it was over a century before the church began to adopt the cross as a symbol of our faith because it was so scandalous. It was so shameful because the cross in the eyes of the world, was a mark of failure and shame. And more than that, Moses wrote in the law in Deuteronomy 21-23 that anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. So Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jewish people because if he was crucified, he's under God's curse. So how could he be God's anointed Messiah? The Greek that's used here for scandal is, um, is scandalon. And it's where we get our English word scandal. This was scandalous to them. According to all measures of the world's wisdom, the message of the cross is just scandalous. It's a disgrace. It's an outrage. It's an offense. It's lunacy. It's insanity. It's foolishness. To the wisdom of this world, Christ crucified would have been an oxymoron. And only morons would believe it. You know, if you've been reading along with us in our our reading through the Bible, which, by the way, we have Bible reading. We're reading together through the New Testament this week. You can pick up a Bible reading plan. We're on week three, starting in Mark 11 tomorrow. If you were following through this week, you read with us on Wednesday, Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, we hear Jesus say in Mark 8, 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, we're living more and more today in a shame culture. We call it cancel culture. Because we say, nowadays, people say, not only is your belief unacceptable, but you are unacceptable. Because what kind of a fool, what kind of a horrible person would believe such a scandalous thing? And we shame them and we cancel them into silence. And the world says, following Jesus, embracing that old rugged cross, that is shameful and you should be ashamed. You should be ashamed of believing something like that. And of clinging to something so foolish and intolerant and exclusive and out of step and on the wrong side of history. According to the wisdom of the world, you should be shamed and silenced and canceled. Because what type of a fool holds to the scandalous belief of a crucified Messiah? However, my my nine-year-old, Hannah, has memorized in her Sunday school class with Miss Pam and Miss Julie. Thank you, Miss Pam and Miss Julie. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
before the wisdom of this world, I'm not ashamed and I will not be shamed and I will not be silent. For what they see is foolishness, I know is power. And that's what Paul affirms in verse 24. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are called. Friends, it's only the call of God that can change our minds. Only the call of God can heal our blindness, can soften our rebellious hearts. Only the call of God can change so that we see the foolishness of the cross as actually the wisdom of God. You know, at our Wednesday night studies, every Wednesday night, 6 to 7 p.m., another plug, at our Wednesday night studies, we're reading through Acts. And in Acts, just last Wednesday, we read about the conversion of Saul, who became Paul in Acts chapter 9. Now, friends, this man, Saul, he had all the wisdom. He had all the learning and the training of his day. He trained under the, most, the best of the rabbis. He understood the philosophies and the rhetoric of his day. He knew the Hebrew Scriptures from beginning to end. And yet, with all of his great wisdom, when Paul heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ, he said, that's foolishness. That's Saul. When Saul heard it the first, he said, that's foolishness. And what did he do? He persecuted the church. He persecuted Jesus Christ. Because despite all of his wisdom and learning, he saw it as foolishness. And those who clung to it as fools who should be destroyed. And it wasn't until the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 6 and revealed himself to him that all of a sudden what Paul once thought was foolishness became wisdom. And all the things that he once thought were so wise, he all of a sudden saw as foolishness. Friends, only the call of God can change us so that we can see if human wisdom didn't change Paul, Christ changed Paul. He moved him to see what was unattractive as suddenly attractive. What he thought was weakness as power. What he saw as folly as wisdom. To those who are called, the old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction to us. And so Paul concludes in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And friends, what wisdom are you going to embrace? As you go from here, as you live your life, what wisdom are you going to embrace? What strength are you going to trust? Are you willing to play the fool? Are you willing to stand on the wrong side of history in the eyes of the world and its wisdom? Are you willing to bear the shame and the reproach of the cross? Because as we said earlier, when you look at the cross of Jesus, what do you see? When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, what do you see? Because, friends, I promise you that's the only question that matters. So how do you answer? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the old rugged cross. Thank You for the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And thank You for the power that is there within. Father, if there are those that are here today or watching online that don't see the beauty and the wonder and the power of the cross, Father, would You open their eyes and reveal to them now Would you draw their hearts that they might respond to you? Would you show them that 
that which they that which they think is so wise is actually foolishness that's leading to death. And that you have revealed yourself and given us true wisdom and salvation in Christ alone. And Father, help us. Help us not to be tempted by the world's wisdom because we'll be honest, it can be hard. It can be hard to stand and be counted as a fool, but I pray that you would give us courage and boldness that we might be counted as your fools, knowing that your foolishness is greater than man's wisdom and knowing that your weakness is greater than man's strength. Help us to stand in you and for your glory. Amen.